The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Let's continue where we left off yesterday. So we have been looking at the idea of faith in Buddhism, a sadha, and how that actually is used in practice, how we get these five spiritual faculties to get them going, so to speak, faith being the first one of these five uh, spiritual faculties. Uh, and yesterday we had a look at the uh, how to think about the Buddha uh, and how that can be used to kind of empower that faith faculty. Uh, and now I wanted to have a quick look at how to recollect the Sangha. I've left the Dhamma out because I'm going to come back to the uh, Dhamma later on in connection with the uh, factors of awakening. Uh, but now I want to have a look at the Sangha First of all, uh, so uh, uh, yes, so uh, this is how it goes. Uh, so this is still on the Mahanama Sutta, uh, the Sutta we we're looking at yesterday. Uh, again, Mahanama, a noble disciple, uh, recollects the Sangha thus: uh, the Sangha of the Blessed One's disciple is practicing the good way, uh, practicing the straight way, practicing the true way, practicing the proper way. Uh, that is the four pairs of persons, the eight types of individuals. Uh, this Sangha of the Blessed One's disciples is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, uh, worthy of reverential salutation, uh, the unsurpassed field of merit for the world. Uh, so that is the uh, standard recollection of the Sangha that you find in the suttas. Uh, so this is how the Buddha recommends that one should recollect the Sangha. And uh, just very briefly, what is uh, happening here is that uh, because uh, they have insight, yeah, insight into the Four Noble Truths and insight into the uh, teaching of the Buddha, they are practicing the good way. They know what the path is. Uh, so that's the good way. Yeah? They, 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 have a, they have a direct understanding of the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, so they can't really go wrong when it comes to the practice. Uh, so they practice in the good way, the straight way, because the Noble pa Eightfold Path is the straight way to awakening. Uh, that Noble Eightfold Path is the shortcut. Uh, so when you hear someone pr proposing a shortcut that is shorter than the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, such as the Sevenfold Path, uh, or whatever, <laughs> then you know you are in trouble, because this is the shortcut. Uh, there is no shorter cut than the, this one here. Uh. Uh, practicing the true way, this is the Nyaya Patipanoha. And the word Nyaya in the suttas means like, uh, comes from the word that means to lead. So this is like uh, the, the leading way, the path that leads, and it, of course it leads to awakening. Uh, and what this refers to in the suttas is usually dependent origination. Uh, so dependent origination is um, uh, in the, it comes in two two kind of sequences. One is the origination sequence and one is the cessation sequence. And the, in the origination sequ sequence, dependent origination shows you how ignorance leads to suffering yeah, via rebirth and all of that. That's the forward sequence of dependent origination. And then the cessation sequence, it shows you how when you eliminate ignorance, avijja, how that ultimately eliminates suffering. Yeah. So because the noble disciple has already started to eliminate avijja and they are on the path to eliminating it completely, they are practicing the cessation sequence of dependent origination, if you like. 
So in that sense, they are Nyaya Patipando. Gradually, everything is just ceasing and fading away because of uh, that, that delusion has been uh, eliminated or started or begun to be eliminated, which is at the root of the whole problem. Uh, so uh, this, that is what that means. And uh, then you have the uh, uh, practice in the proper way. Yeah, this is just another way of saying it is the, the right way, uh, the appropriate way or whatever. Uh, and then you have this idea of the four pairs of person, the eight types of individuals. Uh, and this is the same people that we saw before. Remember that list of people before uh, when it had at the very beginning of the five spiritual faculties? Uh, yeah, the stream mantra and all of that. Uh, that is what that refers to. Uh, and uh, they can also be grouped in pairs. That's why you have four pairs. Uh, and uh, then again, you have this idea again that they are worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, uh, worthy of reverential salutation. And again, the reason for that is because they have direct, direct access to these teachings and direct access to understanding the highest happiness and the ending of suffering for human beings. So, so it's like they have the highest... Uh, almost like they have the highest gift in a sense that they can give you. There's no teaching that is higher than this. Uh, uh, and in the same reason that we are kind of grateful for any teacher, usually that teaches us something, uh, because this is the highest teaching. They are, you have that uh, extra kind of, I suppose, uh, gratitude or willingness to support them in return and all of these kind of things. Uh, so that is where uh, that comes from and then you have its last one it is an unsurpassed field of merit for the world uh, and um, that basically means that if you are gonna uh, you know offer something to somebody uh, then uh, usually you feel more happiness you get more joy out of it uh, if you offer something to someone who has more purity and has more of these particular qualities, it has more effect, it is more potent, so to speak, in terms of merit, in terms of good karma and all of this, because of the purity of the person. When, like when you give it to an arahant, someone who is very pure, you tend to feel really good about that. And But of course the problem is we often don't know who these people are, so it's not really worthwhile trying to kind of just give just to Arahants because uh, anyway it would be really hard put you won't be giving very much if you only give to Arahants they, they're pretty few and far between Yeah, it's not kind of your run of the mill person who is an Arahant so you, uh, because of that the Buddha says that the, the, if you're a Buddhist the, the good way to do offerings if you want to support the Buddhist cause uh, is to offer to the Sangha because when you offer to the Sangha then you are kind of broadening out your idea and that is where normally within the Sangha you will find the noble ones yeah so if you give to the Sangha in general then you are supporting a noble course and cause and then you are supporting Buddhism into the future to kind of uh, you know ensure that uh, Buddhism actually is sustained and becomes a force for good in the world uh, and that's a very nice way of giving, is to think that when you give a gift, uh, especially if you support Buddhism or whatever in one way or another, uh, is to remember that when you support the Buddhist teachings, so Buddhism, uh, you are supporting the spreading out of these beautiful teachings in the world. Uh, and you're supporting the happiness and the uh, reduction in suffering to a large number of people around the world by making the, these teachings available. Uh, and this is a beautiful way of thinking about it, because then you kind of... Uh, you kind of incline the mind to more joy and happiness as a consequence. 
So a lot of how we give and how we what what we do on the path has a lot to do with our attitude, and with the right kind of attitude, you actually you improve your ability to uh, draw benefits from from this path a lot. So that's a kind of nice way of of thinking about it. And um, uh, so that is uh, that is the recollection of the sangha and. And what does this mean in practice? What does it mean in practice that people are practicing in the right way and all of these kind of things? And uh, very often what it means is that you, uh, to, to gain that kind of understanding, you have to look at how people live their lives. And uh, sometimes it can be quite inspiring to look at some of those uh, Buddhists, especially monastics, uh, who live this kind of lifestyle to the full, uh, yeah, who live far away in the forest somewhere. And despite living far away in the forest somewhere, they often have all these marvelous qualities. And maybe precisely because of that, uh, they have all these marvelous qualities. Uh, whereas most people wouldn't be able to sustain that kind of life at all. Uh, here you find people actually thrive in that kind of situation uh, where you live far away and you actually have more happiness than ordinary people. Even though you, have no, you live completely by yourself, you have no entertainment, you have no distractions or anything like that, uh, still there is a profundity to these people uh, that is kind of astonishing. Uh, and uh, when you see that, you realize this really goes against the stream. It goes against how people normally... Uh, are able to live their lives, and because of that, it, it gives an inspiration that there is something else in the world, something more profound going on. It gives you a sense of hope that the ordinary suffering of the world can be transcended, and something more meaningful can actually be found. And uh, uh, there are there are lots of stories about this, both in the suttas and also you know kind of contemporary teachers that are kind of nice. And one story I was telling recently is from the suttas. Is a story. This is kind of a strange story. I don't know <laughs> if these stories are Buddhist stories, and they kind of point to the truth. Whether they absolutely happen like this, I'm not sure. Uh, this particular story is found in the Majjhimanikaya. If you want to look it up later on, uh, in the Majjhimanikaya number middle length sayings number fifty, uh, it's called the Mara Tajaniya Sutta. Uh, I think it's there. Uh, okay, I think it's there. Uh, and. Um, this particular story is of this, uh, there's a monk in the forest somewhere, and he's meditating. And while he's meditating, he goes into this incredibly profound state of meditation. Yeah, that's called the Niroda Samapati, or the cessation of perception and feeling. And it is the most profound state of meditation that you can achieve from a Buddhist point of view. So he's sitting there in the forest, yeah, and, and kind of, and when you, go into these kind of meditations, you become incredibly still. You become so still that you cannot tell that the person is alive anymore. Yeah? You had to look at them and they don't actually look like they're dead pretty much because nothing is moving. There's no breath, there's nothing at all. All the metabolism has kind of come down to zero, so there's nothing happening here. So it looks like they're dead. When you touch them, you feel, oh, okay, still warm. So it must be it's a bit funny. They look dead, but they're warm. What's going on? Okay, so, so you wonder. This is kind of the kind of weird things. So he's sitting there in the forest, and then two of these uh, local boys who are looking for firewood, uh, yeah, they come around, uh, and they see this monk sitting there, and they say, look at this one, he's dead. Yeah, he's, he's, there's no breath, nothing, he must be dead. Okay, let's make a big fire, we have all this firewood with us, we're looking for firewood, let's make a big pile and put him on top and cremate him out of compassion, so he gets a good cremation, yeah. 
So they take this monk in a big, a big pile and put the monk on top. Yeah, okay, sit him down there. His meditation is so deep, he has no idea what's going on in, in his meditation. And then they light the fire, and then they go away. <laughs> and then the next morning, because these are kind of local Buddhists, the next morning they come out and they are going to put food into the monks' bowls. Yeah, so they're kind of there putting, the monks are coming in kind of a line, and they put food in their bowls. And then they look up, and when they look up, they see this monk. Yeah, that they, we, but we cremated you yesterday. What are you, what are you doing here? What, you're supposed to be dead. You're supposed to be a pile of ashes. What happened to you? And, uh, and, and the idea here is that if you reach a state of meditation that is so profound, then you become, in a sense, untouchable by these kind of things. It is no longer possible to really to cremate you because the body has gone beyond that kind of ordinary ordinary way. It doesn't work in an ordinary way. So when the monk kind of came out as meditation, he kind of looked around and he saw a bit of ashes everywhere and a bit of kind of his robes were a bit dirty, so he kind of brushed off the ashes and then he walked off. Yeah, And then he was okay that's a story from the suttas, and it is based on the, I don't know how far to take it, but it's based on the essential idea that meditation can be so profound that you appear dead to the external world. Yeah, that's kind of, and that idea, I think, is, is correct. And uh, so that is, is, is one of those stories. And there's another story. This was a very famous monk from China. His name, I c- can't remember his name in how it is pronounced in Chinese, but uh, in English translation, it's something like Empty Cloud. Yeah, and I, it's a really nice name, Empty Cloud, as if a cloud is not empty enough already. Here you have the Empty Cloud. And he was very famous, and he had lots of disciples, and one of those disciples became a, a monk who started something called the City of 10,000 Buddhas in California, outside San Francisco later on. And uh, he was one of the, I think, one of the most famous monks in, in China, and famous for his practice, not just for kind of being, you know, at the top of the hierarchy or whatever, which is often how you become famous. Uh, and he, apparently, he, <coughs> his meditation was so profound that one day he was sitting there and his disciples were offering him food, yeah, gave him the food, and then he said, oh yeah, I'm just going to do a bit of meditation before I eat, and then seven days later he comes out uh, and then the food is all moldy and is all kind of cannot be eaten anymore. Uh, yeah, oops, I, I went too deep in my meditation practice. Uh, it's a similar kind of idea. Uh, and uh, another similar story is a story with, uh, uh, with Ajahn Brahm. And this is a story from the early days in Thailand. Uh, and Ajahn, in Thailand in those early days, you had the, uh, the often the monks and the lay people would... Uh, uh, meditate together and then the monks would sit on a little stage almost like this and the medita- lay people would sit on the floor and uh, this one day they were all meditating together and then after an hour or so people would start to leave because meditation you know one hour is kind of the standard set but a few people meditate longer yeah so a few people keep going and eventually there was only two people left in that hall. And one of them was Ajahn Brahm. And another one was this old Thai lady. These old Thai ladies are really tough. They can kind of sit there for hours and hours. And sometimes they get good meditation as well. Yeah, And they kind of really, they really know what they're doing. Yeah? And so this old Thai lady, after a while, she was watching Ajahn Brahm. And she, there was nothing moving. Yeah, There was complete still. And it's this, again, this idea that when you go into a deep state of meditation, everything becomes absolutely still. There's no breath, there's nothing going on. And as I like to say, I once sat next to Ajahn Brahm on one of these occasions, and even the mosquitoes get confused. 
Yeah, it's one of the strange things because the mosquitoes, they expect some kind of breath or some sign of life that something is going on. But the mosquitoes just kept going round and round and round Ajahn Brahm and didn't know what, whether it was a tree or whether it was a human being or what it was. It was a very strange to see that. They couldn't really do anything with a person like that because I think the mosquitoes, they sort of uh, you know, go by maybe the carbon dioxide or whatever that is kind of given off the body. When nothing comes out of the body, then they don't know what's going on. So they kind of, is this a rock or a human being? Not sure. It's a warm, nice warm rock, but uh, I'm not sure if there's any blood, nice blood in this, this thing. So we better kind of... <laughs> and uh, so after a while, this Thai, old Thai lady is watching this monk. Yeah, nothing happening, nothing. And after a while, she gets concerned. After three or four hours, uh, she gets concerned. Uh, so she goes out to the hall uh, and she goes out to meet all the other monks. And she says to the monks, uh, there's this monk in the hall. He's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and this is this is what happens. Yeah, and this is kind of uh, uh, deep. What deep meditation is all about? Uh, it looks like you are dead for the to the rest of the world, uh, and this is part of the part of the kind of. Uh, and when you look at that, uh, you realize that there's something very profound going on because most people can't really sit still. Uh, but when you're so still that it looks like you're dead, even when you watch carefully, you know something profound and amazing is going on. Uh. So these are the kind of things that, uh, you know, when you reflect on that, you kind of understand the idea that there is a deeper reality, uh, and it gives you a feeling that uh, uh, something uh, nice is happening here. Uh, and there's lots of other uh, stories uh, like this about kind of especially monastics practicing meditation to a very deep level, uh, uh, and also the qualities of these monastics. Uh, there's another nice little story, which you probably may have heard before, but uh, uh, anyway, it's kind of nice to tell. Uh, and this is the story of Ajahn Ganha, who I met a couple of years ago in Thailand. Uh, and he used to come to Perth. Uh, he stayed at our monastery in Perth, Bodhinana Monastery, for about a year. Uh, and uh, this period, while he was staying there, was a time when we were building up the monastery. Uh, and because we were building up the monastery, we, de we depended on the goodwill of the local council. He had to give us all the approvals for the buildings. Uh, and this was like an old country council, yeah, kind of a bit, bit old-fashioned. hadn't really kind of gotten with the times yet. This was back in the 80s. Things were a bit simpler then. Uh, and this was also a bit behind the times. So it was this one man who was the mayor, who was kind of the big farmer in the in the um, Shire, and he was like kind of the big boss, and you had to kind of get everything past him. And if he said it was okay, then it was okay. Yeah. So Ajahn Gandha was in the monastery, and one day this mayor of the local council, he walks in. It was critical to have a really good relationship with him. So he walks in, and before Ajahn Brahm has a chance to greet him, Ajahn Gandha has seen him. Yeah. So Ajahn Gandha sees this man coming in, and this man comes in his suit. Yeah, and he has a, he is a kind of, you know, quite important man in the local community. He has a nice suit, a big belly. Yeah, kind of, he has obviously well fed over many years, big belly. And Ajahn Gandha sees this man, and he sees this big belly. He's really impressed by this belly. So. Now, the point, remember, Ajahn Gandha is a very, he's one of these very soft monks. Yeah, many people say he's an arahant uh, and has a lot of metta, so much kindness. Uh, and uh, this is kind of the, the point of this. So then he, this man comes in uh, and Ajahn Gandha sees this belly and sees this man. So he goes up to this man uh, yeah, and looks at him and looks at the belly. And he takes out his hand and he starts patting him on the belly. <laughs> <laughs> And Ajahn Brahm sees this, Ajahn Brahm thinks, oh no, <laughs> this is the end, no more, 
no more approvals for all of this. Yeah, this is this is kind of now we are finished. The monastery is kind of over. This is kind of the end of everything here because you don't go around in Australia patting people on the belly. It's a no-no. You have never met the person before. You can kind of just go up to someone in the street and pat them on the belly. They will think you are completely crazy and they will can have you arrested or something here. But of course, the point is that if you have a certain qualities, uh, you can get away with stuff that nobody else can get away with, simply because of your kindness and the aura around you. Uh, so soon enough, this mayor, he was starting to giggle and to kind of laugh and gurgle like a baby, because it was kind of so nice uh, to be in the presence of a person like that. Uh, so there was no problem. And after that, instead of having more problems with applications or whatever, everything went through, yeah? Because now he realized that monastery was actually for good. It was something very positive. So this is kind of the, the thing, yeah? Sometimes you have this experience that are really special and exceptional. And um, another uh, nice, a ni- very nice monk that I, I haven't actually met him, but other, other monks I met, uh, know him, and he is also uh, one of these very famous people. People say he was an Arya, perhaps an Arahant, and this was in Sri Lanka. And he, he was originally from Germany, this particular monk, yeah, very, very famous in Sri Lanka at the time. Huh? And he died about 10 years ago or something now. Huh? And Ajahn Brahm met him once, and Ajahn Brahm, when he met him, said this was the most amazing Dhamma talk he ever heard in his life uh, when he listened to this uh, person give a Dhamma talk. Yeah. And he was a monk who just wandered around Sri Lanka for 30 years without ever kind of being in one place. Uh, He had almost no possessions. Uh, He had his robes and a bowl and a tiny little bag with like a razor or something like that. Uh, No shoes, nothing. And all he ever did was wandering around Sri Lanka and finding nice places to meditate, staying there for a few days, uh, and then moving on to the next place. And this is how he lived for 30 or 40 years. It's almost, it's very hard to really kind of get your head around that. And then for the rains retreat, he would stop in a local small monastery in the forest and stay there, and then he would kind of carry on like this. And when Ajahn Brahm met him in Sri Lanka, then uh, uh, he gave him a Dhamma talk. And then part of this Dhamma talk was how he ended up becoming a monk, Yeah, what actually happened. And this was in Germany in the interwar period between the First World War and the Second World War. And uh, uh, during this period, uh, that was kind of, you know, the 1920s uh, was uh, was a time of kind of a lot of, you know, people were kind of enjoying themselves and things were going well in the world and stock markets were rising and people were wealthy. That's when the Great Gatsby, you may have heard about the Great Gatsby, a famous um, American book written by a fellow called Scott Fitzgerald or whatever. I, we had to read that in high school, I remember, so that's why I know that book here. And so this was kind of the high society life, people, you know, enjoying themselves. And it was the same in Germany. So he was wandering around the city, wherever he was living in Germany, and he was looking at all these people, amusing themselves, having a good time. And he came to this one place, this kind of beer place, where there were German beer stube, they called them. And people in the cellar kind of just drinking beer and having a good time and laughing and enjoying themselves. And as he was watching this, he saw there was a fire starting in the same building, but two or three floors up. And these were wooden buildings. And in wooden buildings, fire spread very fast. So he was watching this, and he saw some of the young people enjoying themselves. They were kind of leaving, yeah, because they realized this is too dangerous. 
But some of the young people, they thought, ah, yeah, the fire yeah, is way up there. Just relax, yeah, chill, enjoy ourselves. Uh, and this is more important than kind of the uh, building burning down. Uh, and after a while, all the people who were serving left, and then they become even more excited because now they had free beer. Yeah, All the people who were serving were gone. Uh, so they carried on. Uh, People would leave, but some would remain. And some of them remained so long that the building eventually collapsed, and it collapsed on top of them. Yeah, and they, many of those people died as a consequence. And this person, who then became this famous monk later on, when he saw this, he, uh, this was enough for him to give up the uh, ordinary life and become a monk in Sri Lanka. Uh, because for him this was such a powerful impression, uh, a powerful reflection on how we all live our lives. Uh, yeah? We all live our lives heedlessly uh, while the world is burning, uh, while everything is collapsing because of impermanence, uh, while everything doesn't really work out at the end of the day. We are heedlessly going along, enjoying ourselves uh, as if nothing really is happening. Uh, this is the problem for the vast majority of our lives. So for him, this was a bang, this was a metaphor for life in general. And because it was a metaphor for life in general, they understood what was going on. That was enough for him to become a monk. And then he lived as this exemplary monk in Sri Lanka for many decades. And eventually, many people say he was an arahant or an arya. And so this was one of those... Uh, Dhamma talks, Ajahn Brahm was there to listen to, uh, and he said it was one of the most powerful Dhamma talks uh, that he ever heard in his life as a consequence. Uh. So when you hear some of these stories and you meet some of these people uh, and you reflect on how people live in this way, uh, it can be very inspiring because it uh, uh, reminds you that there is something more in this world than ordinary life. Uh, there is something more profound going on. Uh. And this is what this, uh, in part, this recollection of the Sangha is about. Uh, when you hear about these monks who live far away in the forest for year after year after year with nothing around them, uh, in a three-walled cutie, waking up in the morning with wildlife sleeping next to them, yeah, snakes or whatever it is, uh, and this is how they live for long periods of time, then you you kind of you get it's kind of it's inspiring. It's almost uh, almost too much sometimes, uh, but it's it's certainly uh, very inspiring. Yeah. So this is a, a way of uh, reflecting on the Sangha, the noble ones, because they, this is how they are. And then when you do that, when you get that right, when you get inspired by these things, uh, then the same thing happens as happens when you reflect on the Buddha. And uh, this is how it is explained here. Uh, when the noble disciple uh, recollects the Sangha, the noble Sangha, on that occasion his mind is not obsessed by uh, desire, ill will, or confusion. Uh, on that occasion, his mind is simply straight, based on the Sangha. A noble disciple whose mind is straight gains inspiration in the meaning, uh, gains inspiration in the Dhamma, gains joy connected with the Dhamma. When he is joyful, rapture arises. Uh, for one with a rapturous mind, the body becomes tranquil. Uh, one tranquil in body feels pleasure. Uh, for one feeling pleasure, the mind becomes stilled. Uh, this is called the noble disciple who dwells in balance uh, amid an unbalanced population, uh, who dwells unafflicted amid an afflicted population. Uh, as one who has entered the stream of the Dhamma, he develops recollection of the Sangha. So again, uh, 
the idea that when you think about the Dhamma and you understand the power of the Dhamma, the, uh, what the Dhamma can, has to offer you in your life, you feel inspired by that. You understand what the Dhamma is all about. Uh, it's about moving away from suffering and the problems of the world, uh, moving towards greater happiness and equanimity and ease and all of these things. Uh, so you get inspired by the purpose, the meaning, the aim of these teachings. Uh, and then you also get inspired by the Dhamma itself because that is the teaching that gets you there. And then when the joy arises, that joy becomes the foundation that you use in your meditation practice when you watch the breath to take you all the way to stillness. So this is how this, this faith, yeah, this basic reflection in the right way actually leads you to samadhi ultimately. And then from samadhi you also get the insight. And this is how these five spiritual faculties get uh, fulfilled and how they arise one depending on the other so that is the um, uh, recollection of the sangha and uh, uh, sometimes uh, this may again these things are not necessarily easy you may not be inspired sometimes there are nice stories but they may not be you may not be able to fully relate to it and sometimes that can be problematic and for that reason, sometimes you need an, perhaps an even simpler kind of reflection to kind of get you inspired. And that's why I included the next little sutta bit here. This is called the Nandiya Sutta. This is also from the Anguttara Nikaya, the Numerical Discourses, the Book of Elevens. And this is just a, a, a slight alteration, not really the Sangha, but a, a, a reflection on Kalyana Mitta. And, uh, of course, there's a very close connection between recalling the Buddha, recalling the Sangha, and recalling Kalyanamitta. But this is a little bit broader and perhaps, therefore, a little bit easier to, uh, to relate to. And this is uh, how it goes. So uh, the Buddha says, again, Nandiya, you should recollect good friends. Yeah, the Kalyanamitta, thus... It is truly my good fortune and gain that I have good friends who take compassion on me, who desire my good, who exhort and instruct me. Thus you should establish mindfulness internally based on good friends. So this is a, a little bit what I was suggesting before, that when you come to a retreat like this and you reflect how fortunate you are to be able to be here, to have like-minded people around you uh, who practice like you, and you, ha you have the Buddha as your teacher, uh, and you have, uh, uh, you know, you have all of these things coming together in one go, uh, and that, that you have a life where where you do have uh, a large number of kalyanamittas, uh, people you can rely on, people you can listen to, uh, uh, and both friends, uh, lay people, and also monastics, uh, and all of these things coming together and kind of helping you and driving you towards a more meaningful and purposeful life as a consequence. Uh, what a blessing that is. Uh, uh, if you don't have those things and if you all, all you have is an ordinary life, uh, it is often so dry and so uh, pointless and just living for material things in the world uh, is not really satisfactory. Uh, yeah, Australian society is a very kind of secular society these days. Uh, most people don't really have a religion anymore uh, and they live for all kinds of uh, stupid silly things really not just australians i think norwegian society where i come was exactly the same people live for their bmws or whatever and it's just empty it is just kind of uh, you know uh, it, it doesn't really have that profundity or meaning to it uh, 
So what a wonderful thing it is to have a people uh, who have the ability to kind of lift you up a little bit and to make you see something more and encourage you to practice and live in the right way. These are the real Kalyanamittas. Uh, and from the Kalyanamittas come all the good that the Dhamma and Buddhism can give uh, come from this idea of having a good spiritual friends. Uh, wow, how, what a wonderful thing it is to have these uh, spiritual friends in my life. Uh, and uh, it's a great thing to do when you are on retreat like this, because when you appreciate your fellow retreatants in this way, uh, then all the, the kind of small little things that might be annoying, you know, people making noises in the meditation, we had a few questions about that a few days ago, uh, uh, then all of that kind of tends to disappear, because the big picture is so beautiful and so attractive and so nice, uh, and then you have the right attitude uh, and then uh, the Buddha says that Nandya, a noble disciple who possesses these 11 qualities, or in this case this one quality, abandons bad unwholesome qualities and does not take them up. Just as a pot turned upside down does not receive back the water that has been poured out, and just as a fire that has got out of control advances, burning up a dry woodland, but does not return to what it has burnt. So too, a noble disciple who possesses these 11 qualities abandons bad, wholesome, unwholesome qualities and does not take them up. So this is like the movement away from unwholesome qualities and you, you stop taking up the bad ones because you, uh, uh, you're heading in the right direction with these kind of recollections. So, uh, there you are. That is uh, just a few ways to learn, to I know, inspire yourself a little bit uh, uh, in Buddhism. It is also the way of inspiring yourself by reflecting on the Dhamma, and I'll get back to that uh, 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 quite soon. Uh, and when you do that, then of course that inspiration becomes then this force uh, in your meditation practice and everything else. Uh, so it's very useful if you're able to get into this a little bit. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that is what I wanted to say about the five spiritual faculties. And uh, as I mentioned before, the five spiritual powers, uh, Panchabala, are very similar. I'm not going to talk about those separately. And now there's only two groups of uh, left of these 37 Bodhipakya Dhammas, uh, these 37 aids to awakening. And these two groups that remain are the seven factors of awakening and the Noble Eightfold Path. So now I want to move on to the seven factors of awakening. And as I mentioned before, these factors, they cover the last two factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. And the first of the seven factors of awakening is the Sati Sambhojanga, the factor of awakening which is mindfulness. And the last one is the Upeka Sambhojanga, which is really the upeka that comes from the fourth jhana, that equanimity, the evenness of mind that comes from the fourth jhana. So this is a detailed description of the last two factors. It kind of stretches out the last two factors. And you will notice that when we look at this, you will notice that it is very similar to many of the things that we have been doing already. And so it is kind of... a uh, again, just a slightly different angle on, on things that we have already seen. But um, this, is, uh, this is the usual description. So this is from the uh, Sangyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourse of, of the Buddha, the 46th collection. 
which is uh, called the uh, Collection on Awakening Factors, the Bojanga Sangyuta, the fifth factor, uh, and the, the fi- sorry, the fifth sutta, and the sutta is called a monk, and this is uh, how it goes. Uh, at Savati, then a mendicant went up to the Buddha and said to him, Sir, they speak of awakening factors. How are the awakening factors defined? Or what are they? What do they mean? Mendicant, they are called awakening factors because they lead to awakening. A mendicant develops the awakening factors of mindfulness, investigation of principles, energy, rapture, tranquility, immersion and equanimity which rely on seclusion fading away cessation and ripen in letting go so here uh, you have you know why they are called awakening factors because they lead to awakening yeah this the, the purpose of them is because they that's what where they get you and of course what is one of the things that is interesting about that is that the seven awakening factors they end in samadhi just as the noble eightfold path ends in samadhi samma samadhi the four jhanas so the awakening factors also end in samadhi it is samadhi that leads to awakening once you gain the profound samadhi of the buddhist path you are on the cusp of seeing things as they actually are all you have to do is come out of that samadhi and because you already have a degree of right view the mind will tend to go in the right direction and then you get that insight yeah based on the principles that we saw before in the anapanasati sutta you see things automatically pretty much as impermanent and all of that so all you have to do yeah the path really ends with samadhi and then a consequence of that samadhi is that you see things according to reality if uh, uh, only one thing is required, and that is the right view at the beginning here. So this is how uh, how they lead to uh, awakening here. And then you have these uh, seven factors. So let me just pr- perhaps describe these seven factors briefly, uh, so that you uh, we become a, a little bit more clear what is meant by these things. Uh, uh, so the first one is the uh, Sati Sambhojanga, the awakening factor of mindfulness. Uh, and uh, one way of thinking about that is just to think about it as the four foundations, the four applications of mindfulness, Satipatthana. So when you practice Satipatthana and you do it properly according to the Satipatthana formula, and that means in particular if you practice uh, uh, mindfulness of breathing, which fulfills the Satipatthanas. So by practicing mindfulness of breathing, you are actually uh, fulfilling or, or practicing the first uh, uh, the first Sambhojanga uh, here, the first awakening factor. All you have to do is watch the breath again. This breath really does so much on the Buddhist path. And you may remember, I don't know if we saw that, but there is a sutta that show you how the uh, satipatthanas move seamlessly into the bojangas, uh, the factors of awakening. So this is like a natural, a seamless transition from one to the other one. Uh, so you, all you have to do is watch the breath, and if you do that properly, you already you are on the first factor of awakening here. Uh. So this is one way of doing this, and it's the most obvious one yeah but there are also other ways that the bojangas can be developed the satisam bojanga in particular and one of those ways is the recollection of the dhamma yeah because when you recall the dhamma again it is 
it comes also under the next one, the investigation of principles, which is the investigation of Dhamma. When you recall that Dhamma and you investigate it, uh, if you do it in the right way, again, it leads to that mindfulness, uh, and you are mindful about that, and then it leads through all of these stages. Uh, just as we saw just now, we looked at the recollection of the Buddha. Recollection of Dhamma is exactly the same, and it gives rise to all that joy and tranquility, which are equivalent to the, the Bojangas that you see here. Uh, so this is also a foundation, yeah, a basis for the bhujangas, because uh, the bhujangas also are a causal sequence where one thing leads to the next one. Uh. So in the, the broader sense, you can say that the mindfulness that is meant here at the beginning of the bhujangas, the first one, uh, is any kind of topic uh, whereby your mindfulness is strengthened uh, and that can give rise to joy and energy and all of these other qualities. Uh, any topic that can give rise to that, uh, uh, and then the abandoning the, uh, that comes at the same time, the abandoning of the hindrances that come at the same time, uh, uh, that is really uh, worthy of being called a sati sambhujanga. Why? Because it gives rise to this particular sequence. So that can be the recollection of sila, just being so happy with how you live your life, recollection of generosity that we talked about before. There's also another nice little recollection called recollection of the devas, yeah, which is mentioned sometimes in the suttas. And the recollection of the devas is just the idea that all of these devas that exist in this world, I don't know if, you, if, the, if devas make any sense to you, if they don't make any sense to you, just forget about it, but if they kind of make sense to you, that there are these invisible beings out there who have practiced really well and lived well in the past, yeah, the way you become a deva, you know, with a, a more power, more happiness, more everything than, than human beings have, is by living well. So when you recall the devas uh, and you know that you are living in the same way that leads to this kind of uh, beautiful state of existence, uh, it also inspires you in a sense. Uh, it's maybe a slightly lower kind of inspiration, uh, but it is one that may be accessible to you if you have that sort of, uh, if you are used to that kind of way of thinking about, about the world. Uh. So all of these things are ways of using sati, using mindfulness to uh, give rise to these bojangas. Uh, so this is the, the first one, the first factor here. Uh, the second one, investigation of uh, principles. Uh, principles here is Dhamma. Uh, and uh, what that means usually in, the, in this context is to understand uh, the Dhamma means your personal qualities. Yeah, so it means to understand the defilements in yourself, the negative qualities, and it also means to understand the positive qualities. So, for example, the, uh, the Bhujanga Sangyutta, normally this is defined as knowing the dark and bright qualities, uh, the blameworthy and blameless qualities, uh, and that sort of thing. That is what investigation of principles means. So, when you investigate yourself like that, and you fully understand which qualities are problematic, which ones hinder you in your meditation, and which ones are supportive, uh, the more you understand that, the more you have the ability to abandon those things. It is not easy to fully understand these things. You may think that knowing your defilements is easy. Actually, it is very difficult. And the reason it is difficult is because some of these things are incredibly subtle. I don't mean coarse desires or coarse ill will. Everyone knows what, what that is. 
What I mean is the very refined things that block you from going deeper in the meditation. Yeah, I was talking about before you come to a plateau, uh, and when you get to that plateau, something doesn't go any further. Why not? Uh, and the reason usually is because you're holding on to something. Yeah? There's something there that you are the body or the senses that you don't want to let go of because you are so used to being able to see, to let, letting go of sight altogether can kind of be scary. Yeah? Yeah, so this is where you have to know your attachments. You have to know the things that you desire in the world. You desire the ability to see. And because you desire the ability to see or to hear, that can actually become a hindrance at this particular point in meditation where you start to go very deep. So these are very subtle things. These are also called sensual attachments yeah, because it has to do with the sensory world around us. And, and this is the sort of stuff that you kind of uncover when you come towards the uh, deeper aspects of meditation practice, like samadhi in particular. Uh, so you need to investigate this. You need to see this uh, inside of yourself, and you can start to see uh, what is actually blocking you. Uh, and then you can do some counter uh, do some countermeasures, uh, such as to understand the unreliability of the sensory world. The sensory world isn't all that great anyway, so why am I holding on to this? Uh, okay, might as well abandon it. So you start start abandoning the sensory world more, because uh, it will never give you that satisfaction that you think it will give you. Uh, and then you can go beyond that. Uh. So this is the idea of investigation of principles, and it is very closely connected with the uh, Satipatthana Sutta. Satipatthana Sutta, four Satipatthanas, body contemplation, feeling contemplation, mind contemplation, and principle contemplation, or Dhamma contemplation. And Dhamma contemplation is precisely about this. Uh, it's about understanding the hindrances, the five hindrances, what they are, how they arise, how they come to be abandoned, and how they stay abandoned in the future. It's a very similar kind of contemplation, uh, and it allows you to see more deeply into the nature of the things that block you from attaining samadhi. Uh. So again, you can see the connection between satipatthana, uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, right mindfulness, uh, and the seven factors of awakening. It's a very close connection between the two uh, that you see here. Uh, and again, there, that, that is one way of thinking about investigation of principles. Uh, uh, there is also another way, and that is what I just mentioned before, is the idea of just recalling the Dhamma, yeah, remembering some kind of inspiring sutta, remembering the meaning of the Dhamma, what it is all about, uh, or any other recollection that gives rise to that kind of wholesome joy where the uh, hindrances and the defilements of the mind are abandoned as a consequence. Uh, so any of that is really an investigation of principles of Dhamma. You may wonder why is it translated as principles? And this is not my translation, this is Adan Sudato's translation. And uh, the reason is because uh, one of the uh, most important things to understand at this particular point is causality, uh, why things arise. Uh, and when you understand causality, then you understand uh, how, what, how, what to do with these things that don't arise in the future. Uh, when you understand the cause of something, you eliminate the cause, then you eliminate the result as well. And we're going to have a look at that later on because I want to have a look at the five hindrances in a bit more detail. And that will show you how this actually works in practice. So, then when you have this kind of mindfulness and you abandon the hindrances 
to a very high degree, then the energy comes. Because the things that blocks the energy of the mind is the hindrances. And the hindrances being removed, energy arises as a consequence. Yeah, the hindrances sap your energy because you're always looking for happiness here and there, running around, being restless, the mind not being still. So it, it destroys the energy of the mind. And the less hindrances you have, the more energy you have because you don't dissipate it on pursuits that are not all that useful. So the energy comes up. And when the energy comes up, yeah, at this point now you are watching the breath and this is a process that is happening. You've got the process going and then the rapture comes to you. You remember the rapture, the piti we're talking about in the Anapanasati Sutta and that we have seen throughout. This is also what you find here in the Bojangas, the awakening factor of rapture or joy. So this is the, the joy, the happiness becomes, meditation starts to become very beautiful and very inspiring at this particular point. And then you continue practicing the breath meditation and then the rapture, tranquility, joy, sorry, the rapture and joy turns into tranquility, a deep, profound tranquility uh, where you start to feel like you can sit on this meditation seat forever because you feel so incredibly peaceful and tranquil. Uh, yeah, you start to look like that Ajahn Brahm sitting on that seat uh, and you feel like this rock yourself. You're not really sure whether you ever want to move from this place anymore. Uh, Unfortunately, you do eventually come out of that tranquility and then you want to move again. But it feels like you could sit there forever because you're so content and so satisfied. And you are kind of approaching now the, the meaning of life. When you don't want to do anything anymore, by definition, you have found the meaning of life. Yeah? If you are fully satisfied and content, that is the definition of the meaning of life, discovered and found. So, tranquility, and then that tranquility uh, with that comes then the immersion, the samadhi, because the what you are experiencing is so beautiful and so happy. You cannot help but being stilled by that, being focused on that, being concentrated on that. It's a natural concentration, not the forced one, and then samadhi happens. And as you develop that samadhi to its highest potential, then you get the equanimity from that. That is where you come to the very high Jhanas, like the third and the fourth jhana especially, is where the equanimity happens. And this word equanimity in Pali is quite an interesting word, upeka. Uh, it means the mind is very even, but it also means looking on. Yeah, It is, comes from the word pekati or upekati, which means to look on. And uh, the idea here is that when you mind is so purified and the hindrances are gone a long, long time ago and the mind is very powerful, you just look on, you just observe things. You have no inclinations or vested interest in anything. So that means you can observe things with complete neutrality and you can see them exactly for what they are. And because of that ability to look on with a uh, with complete detachment and just observe, it means that is where you make the breakthrough. And that's where you see things according to reality. Uh, complete neutrality with very powerful mindfulness, yeah, with strong stillness, you can sustain your attention on the object. All of these powerful qualities come together in that upeka, and that is what enables you to gain real insight. And that's why this is the foundation and basis for awakening itself. And uh, then it says, it says, as they develop uh, the seven awakening factors, uh, 
their mind is freed from the defilements of sensuality, desire to be reborn, and delusion or ignorance. When they're freed, they know they are freed. They understand rebirth is ended, the spiritual journey has been completed, what had to be done has been done, there is no return to any state of existence. They are called awakening factors because they lead to awakening. So uh, this is what awakening is all about. Does that sound nice or does it sound kind of so-so? <laughs> Not being reborn, is that good? It's, it's, sometimes it's hard to really get your head around these things. Okay, I'm freed from sensuality. Most people will say, I don't want to be freed from sensuality. I want to enjoy the sensual pleasures. But, uh, so this is, uh, it is profound. But the point is that uh, from a Buddha's point of view, this is a liberation of the mind when sensuality is gone. Why? Because it is suffering from a higher point of view. And this is kind of, this is where confidence in the Buddha's teachings kind of come in. But you start to get the feeling for that in your meditation practice. When you start to get peaceful and quiet, you start to understand why sensuality is a problem. It is a problem because it is always tied up with craving. And craving is the opposite of stillness. It always has this restless, agitated feel to it. So you start to kind of understand what is going on, why it is problematic. So uh, enjoy your sensuality, but also try to understand kind of its limitations. This is really what this is saying. Here we're talking about the very end of the path, uh, and if it wasn't a bit strange, it wouldn't be worthwhile. It should be a bit strange. It should be a bit unusual. Yeah, that is why it is kind of you can look forward to something radically different from what you're used to. Huh? That's what kind of makes it exciting and, and interesting. Here, yeah? you're freed from the desire to be reborn. Yeah, you have no desire to exist anymore at all, which is also kind of Strange, yeah? Desire for existence is gone. And you have eliminated avidja. You have eliminated delusion. Well, at least that one we can kind of agree on is a good one. We don't want to be deluded or ignorant. That's kind of a, a bad thing. Uh, so delusion is gone. And that kind of points us to the reality that this is something very positive. Because now you see things according to reality. Now, it is interesting how the Dhamma is often phrased in a kind of negative way. Yeah, You are rid of all of these things. But remember that the point is that when you get rid of these things, you get the opposite. You get the highest kind of happiness. You get the highest kind of contentment. You get the highest kind of liberation of mind. All of these positive things come with it. It is not just kind of an abandonment of negative things. It actually is something, an extraordinarily positive experience. Uh, the reason why, I'm not going to get into that, but there is a reason why the Buddha phrased it in the negative, uh, uh, and that has to do with the noble truth of suffering. Yeah? From a higher perspective, all of these things are considered suffering. So you abandon suffering, uh, and then you get a happiness as a consequence of that. Uh, but uh, so that is why it is phrased in this way. Uh, but there's always that uh, opposite side of it. And you know that already from your practice of the spiritual path, uh, you know that is basically true. Yeah? When you get rid of suffering, uh, then happiness and contentment comes into its pla in, in the place of the, the problems. So. And then when you are freed from all this, you know you're freed. Yeah? You know that you are an arahant. You, you don't have to ask anyone, am I an arahant or not? If you have to ask that question, you're not an arahant. <laughs> so, uh, it, which is good. So... Uh, and you know that rebirth is ended. And the reason why you know that is because you have seen directly 
for yourself that craving uh, is uh, is the the cause for rebirth. Uh, this is one of those strange things, but this is a a causal understanding. You can infer uh, through direct insight that craving must lead to rebirth, and when craving is gone, rebirth can no longer happen. Uh, this is what you understand at this particular point. It's a you understand the causal connection between two things. Uh, and uh, yes, the spiritual journey has been completed. Yeah, you come to finally. You have come to the end of this very extraordinary and very interesting and exciting spiritual journey. What had to be done has been done. There is no return to any state of existence. So again, as I mentioned yesterday, you can see here how. The idea of rebirth is fundamental to the entire purpose of the spiritual life. It is all about ending rebirth. If you take rebirth out of it, then all you're left with is the spiritual journey has been completed, and then you wonder what that means. Yeah, because it doesn't really, it doesn't have, it lacks the framework of rebirth that is otherwise is there. So that is the main kind of idea of the ending or the completion of the spiritual path, is that rebirth has come to an end. It is equivalent to the ending of suffering and achieving the highest happiness. And they are called the factors of awakening because they lead to awakening. So, uh, there you are. Uh, that is the seven factors of awakening in brief. And uh, I shall... Uh, at our next session, I shall be looking at the five hindrances a little bit. And you may wonder why we're going to look at the five hindrances when we are looking at the seven factors of awakening. What do they have to do with each other? But uh, these are almost like opposites in the Dhamma. The five hindrances are what block us from making progress, whereas the seven factors of awakening are what you develop to make us progress in meditation on the path. And as the five hindrances go down, the seven factors of awakening come up. As the five hindrances go up, the factors of awakening go down. Yeah? So they're like uh, uh, opposites of each other. And uh, very often, and especially in the Bojanga Sangyuta, they are talked about together as, uh, as one big thing. And that's why I want to talk about that in a little bit more detail, because I think it is useful and interesting here. So that is what we will do this afternoon. So I'll see you back again at 3 o'clock this afternoon. Yeah.